Welcome to the Signal vs. Noise podcast channel by Stuart Group. This is Nick Stewart, CEO at Stuart Group. Financial planning isn't boring. It can be exciting, dynamic and fun. And we make sure to bring that energy into the equation one podcast at a time. To get updates on our latest podcast episodes, hit the follow button on our SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. I have Nathan Smith joining me via phone. Nathan is the New Zealand Initiative's Chief Editor. He brings a depth of experience in writing about business and policy from his eight years as a reporter for the National Business Review, or the NBR. During his time at the NBR, he wrote weekly columns on foreign affairs, trade, technology and cyber, coordinated the newspaper's feature section and covered the country's most exciting technology companies and startups. Today, we are going to talk about COVID-19's impact on publishing houses, journalists, tourism, supply chains, and how the New Zealand economy and businesses may look post-lockdown. So let's jump right in. Hey, well, welcome to our podcast, and I really appreciate the ability for me to interview you from my home office and your home dining room in your new role in Wellington, and uh, really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for the invite. It's, um, it's always good to talk about something, and isn't it funny that we're able to do this without any mediation, quite literally. My old job used to be precisely that, mediating conversations between people, but here we are talking to each other, and there's not a New Zealand Herald or, or an NBR in sight. Isn't it great? <laughs> it's fabulous. Yeah, well, great. Hey, look, great to be having a chat with you. Uh, during some fairly unusual times for New Zealand and our um, our economy. Yeah, I'm 32. I've seen three major um, recessions in my, uh, I guess, formative life, 2001, 2003, 2008, 2020. We're moving into one. If we're not already there, um, it's certainly just around the corner. Um, so we're fairly used to this, and you know, every time that it ends, the cycle sort of finishes. It jumps back on the front end again, and around we go. Um, but this one feels a little different because I guess there's a, an overarching narrative to this, some sort of pandemic, uh, which is changing the narrative of, of, of the little thing we like to call globalization as well. So the questions popping up on that. So it's interesting to watch from my vantage point. Mm, mm. Hey, and so I'm seeing that you know some. It would appear that some reporters are under enormous pressure as COVID-19 news just pours out relentlessly, while for others, work has dried up completely. Uh, you know, I look at our local Hawke's Bay today, they haven't run a, a, a proper business section for three weeks now. You know, what are your thoughts on that? And, you know, in general, how are journalists coping with COVID-19? Well, at this point, um, it's, it's pretty important to ask the question, what is a journalist? Um, there is, I guess there's a difference between a reporter and a journalist. I've always thought that there is a, there is a category difference there. A reporter is somebody who uh, describes what they see, what they're, what they're told, and they write it down or they speak it into the camera. Uh, no real explanation as to what's going on. They're just repeating what they see. Uh, some people actually might say a reporter and a repeater are the same thing, but that's probably too cynical. Hmm. A journalist, on the other hand, takes what they see and they decide what's going on, and then they tell you after mediating what what actually happened and what it meant, and maybe what you can expect coming coming next. I think what's what's happening is the the art of journalism, so to speak, the art of asking questions, the art of digging a little deeper, taking what the government perhaps is saying, um, and and doing something with it, is a little bit of a lost art. 
Um, I'm not the first person to say that. Uh, but, at, but at these moments, it's, it's pretty hard for them to get their heads above the parapet or to um, cut through the noise and actually explain what's going on. This is the time for reporters. This is the time for uh, saying what they see and keeping people up to date. There's not a lot of narrative structure going on because there's not enough time. Events are moving too quickly. Um, but unfortunately, even reporters and even the media isn't the best platform for doing any of this anymore. You and I, um, I don't know how much it costs you to set up your podcast, but um, at the initiative, we've recently set up a podcast as well, and it cost us $1,500 to get a prosumer piece of equipment um, with two microphones and to interview people, and it sounds pretty crystal clear. $1,500, you couldn't have done that 10 years ago uh, because that was the, the boundaries or the, or the complete purview of media. Mm. Suddenly... It's open to everybody. Not only that, people have cell phones, they have Twitter. Some of these uh, Twitter accounts with just normal people have millions of followers and they are uh, collating news that they see everywhere and delivering it for free to everybody. And they're doing the job of reporting. And there's not a lot of jobs left for journalists anymore. Um, so you and I are basically the new media, um, and I think that's important. Um, but also social media is actually a vivid metaphor for, for globalization itself. Everything is connected. Um, all the supply chains are, are completely um, redundant, I guess. Everybody is, is moving in one direction. And all those institutions that used to cater for certain specific things, like investigative reporting or reporting or journalism or TV news, they're all redundant, um, useless, broken, uh, unnecessary now because you and I can do it. Mm. I've been reading locally, I've seen it internationally as well, that companies are slashing their marketing budgets and that advertising revenue is tanking and that's what the publishers rely on and that's just being squeezed. You know, you had Bauer close its doors. Um, any thoughts? Yeah, that's, um, that's a trend that's been coming for a while, I think. Uh, magazines, I thought they would survive because obviously newspapers, as I was saying, were uh, overtaken or the role of, of newspapers was being performed by social networks. Um, and But magazines, I thought, were set. The ability to sit on a Saturday, uh, open up a long-form um, article and read it to your heart's content, um, and different, analog as well, you know, being able to hold something. Um, I thought that differentiator would actually survive. And in some ways, it, it, it kind of has. Books, for instance, aren't going away the dinosaur yet. In fact, mm. I believe there's more books being published every year uh, than ever before. <laughs> yeah. But um, there is something about advertising that really is hurting media in general. There are three ways to get um, funding if you're in media. First is advertising, obviously. That's um, buying up pretty hard. Uh, second is subscription. And some newspapers, like my old newspaper, are doing fairly well, but mainly because they went early. For instance, NBR went to paywall in 2009. Mm. So that's a long time ago. People are pretty used to it now logging on to NBR and being uh, compelled to put in a password. It's just normal. Um, whereas anybody that's gone there recently, such as the Herald, mm. uh, finding it a little bit tough to actually convince people to pay for something that they have essentially come to assume um, was free. The third model is patronage. And they can either come from a big person with big pockets, such as Jeff Bezos with the, um, with the Washington Post, um, or Carlos Slim with the New York Times. Um, but it's still a little iffy. You can't quite tell 
whether, no matter what they say, whether they are pushing down their agenda onto the editors and journalists, because it's, it's just unclear. Some, some fraction of the public will always be suspicious that the journalists are getting their instruction from the patrons. Mm. Um, but there's, there's a slight um, uh, corollary to the patronage model, and that is um, obviously uh, social funding or uh, crowdfunding. Um, and that's a bit more uh, difficult because it's pretty capricious. If, if you start writing something people don't like, um, in the opposite way that uh, a Carlos Slim might control the editorial ship, those people will remove their funding mm. pretty quickly as well. And if people do that, I'm going on the whims of the crowd, not exactly uh, forecast-friendly when it comes to the business model. <laughs> um, so it's, it's tough, really, to, to fund newspapers now the patronage model does seem to be the way of the future. Um, you can already see governments, for instance, uh, dipping back into their pockets to fund certain media groups. But again, do run the issue of can I trust that this media source is completely uh, objective? Um, mm. I would say that's probably a malformed question anyway because no media has ever been objective. Um, but in fact, the whole point of media is to be between what actually happened and what you hear um, and change the story as it flows through. But still, it is is getting tough out there and I think the models um, for funding for media um, will need to be sorted out. Um, Otherwise, we're going to lose it or the big four, you know, the Amazon, the Google, um, Twitter and Facebook, they're going to take control of this. Mm. And at that point, you've basically got businesses um, with their own interests uh, being not just platforms but publishers and you're already starting to see that with censorship uh, control of narrative deletion of videos and articles even whole blogs um, it's the narrative that the Googles and the Facebooks of this world don't appreciate uh, that's a little bit worrying has it ever been different? probably not it's a little bit more in your face now um, the internet does make this far more difficult Um I think what you're noticing with this COVID-19 outbreak is that uh, messages that people like myself have been saying for years that actually media is, uh, is, is part of the state and journalists are actually better seen as being part of the extended civil service than we are public service ourselves because our interests align with the state. You're starting to see that more clearly play out because um, very, very obviously um, propaganda is a tough word it's a nasty word, but it is important to, to bring up here. Propaganda doesn't tell you what to think. It tells you how to act. And I think um, it's, been, it's been hard to notice for the past 20, 30 years mm. as to how propaganda works. But in this case, when propaganda told us all to stay home because it would save lives, we all did it. And so while we can say that the media is broken and it's finding it tough and Advertising is drying up and they're so, and laying off journalists left, right, and centre, and it's not as strong as it used to be. We all took instruction from somewhere, somehow. We're all doing the same thing, and we're all watching the same people give us updates at one o'clock every day. So the media is still working, it's just transferred online, and it's not quite clear who's delivering the message, but the message is still getting out there. So, in, in, in a lot of ways, yes, things are breaking. But the system is far from broken. I think it's uh, historians will be the judge, but I think we've already transitioned into a new media world. It's just very hard to put names on it.
Prime Minister has said that some border controls will need to be put in place until the vaccine is ready. That could be months away. You know, we see that reading the Israeli Times, they reckon they're pretty close. The US reckons they're close. Britain's working on it as well with British American tobacco, funny enough. And so you've got reduced tourism, international student student numbers tanking. It's going to hurt the economy in a major way since, you know, that's worth about $23 billion a year um, between um, uh, education and tourism. Do you think domestic tourism will should be a focus, you know, for our economy post-lockdown? It's a luxury good, isn't it, really, tourism? Um, mm. It's not a basic essential. It's something people choose with their discretionary income. Um, the question is, how much discretionary income will people have, I think, in the future? Um, the, we've, we've been blessed uh, to be very close to and have a great relationship with um, uh, one of our major trading partners, China, for a while, and mm. a lot of our tourism does come from China. That Chinese, I believe, the middle class is one of the, uh, the highest spending tourist um, demographics around the world everywhere, not just in New Zealand. Um, but with uh, tourism being such a, a luxury item, uh, as people put themselves up, maybe start businesses, try to find a job again, um, it's kind of pretty low down um, the list of, of priorities for them. Um, even the whole industries like cruise ships, for instance, I, I don't think we're going to see them coming back in, in, in quite a large way. And unfortunately, over the last couple of years, a lot of them have been dry docked, cut in half, and they've put big expansions to make them larger because they forecasted that the cruise ship industry was going to skyrocket and there was going to be more and more people uh, taking these cruises around the Mediterranean and Caribbean. Mm. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. So all these, all this major expense in investment into uh, the cruise industry probably not a good idea, but they couldn't have predicted this. So it's not no. exactly as if they made a mistake. Um, but tourism itself, I think, New Zealand's assets haven't gone anywhere. Um, uh, there's been some uh, question as to whether uh, for instance, tourism holdings should have taken like, SDI from China over the last couple of years. People have thought, no, that's probably not a good idea. But, if, but the thing about that is, no matter what people invest in here, if they're foreign, foreign owners, they can't take those assets with them. Mm. You know, we still have Rupehu, we still have um, Queenstown. They're not, mm. once, you, once your company goes into liquidation, mountains don't just go to another country. They don't just get owned <laughs> by a hedge fund somewhere in in Switzerland now. Um, so the actual assets will, will remain. I think Kiwis are starting to look in their own backyard a bit more. And once this lockdown ends, maybe we will uh, decide to travel and visit places we always thought we would. It has always been a bit of a cliche that Kiwis will travel around the world and see everything, live in London for a couple of years, do the LV, and then go and see the South Island. Um, <laughs> yeah. But because it's always going to be there. Um, mm. And I suppose that's kind of the same for a lot of Europeans. They'll travel down to the Antipodes or Southeast Asia and then maybe at some point go to France. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a bit different here, I think. Um, uh, one thing I guess most people will be looking forward to, if you can afford to travel, is having fewer people on the beaches. So I guess a lot of people <laughs> will actually be looking forward to a world where there's fewer tourists. But it is a big industry. Um, it is a service economy, however. There's not a lot of production going on with tourism. We've already got, like I say, Rupay has already been built millions of years ago, so it's not like anybody actually had to put any labour into it. And I I, I assume that there's a little bit of maintenance that goes on, but it's not exactly a productive economy. Um, And maybe we can put our efforts, some very smart people in in tourism, uh, into something else. What that is, I don't know, but um, tourism certainly has changed a lot uh, 
And again, history will be the judge uh, of, of exactly how much has changed. Um, but I don't think we're just the only ones dealing with this. Mm. Um, the, the flights are drying up everywhere. With, I've, yeah, it's always been said that Kiwis are a relatively frugal traveller. So it would be interesting that if we do f- focus on a domestic tourism, one would think that some of the usual things that the tourist sector has been used to seeing, you know, like, um, you know, the, you know, helicopter flights, private charters, et cetera, that's not going to be the standard fare for the typical Kiwi domestic traveller. Yeah, uh, Kiwis are also, we've been told by, um, uh, again, media outlets and research institutes just like my, my own, uh, actually a lot of Kiwis are living paycheck to paycheck more than we thought and, you know, up to their, their eyeballs and credit card debt and others. And that, that leaves them very precarious uh, when their income dries up. Uh, and things like travel start to, we start to re-look at um, car travel again rather than aircraft travel. And of course, the more people on the roads, no matter how good the police are and how good the cars are, that will increase things like road deaths as well. Um, it will also increase things like CO2 emissions, depending on whether or not you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, the the idea that, that Kiwis are, are going to be travelling uh, overseas as well, we're a long way from anywhere. It's, uh, the carbon offset on, on certain you know methods of travel has always been a bit iffy for people concerned about that. Um, and, and New Zealand as well has decided that it won't have as many international flights scheduled mm. um, once, once this is all over. It will be a more uh, domestically focused airline. Uh, what, it, what that does to its bottom line, who knows? But uh, Kiwis, I think, uh, maybe everyone's got... One thing I noticed about um, the Coromandel is how many world-class beaches there are, one after the other, going up on that peninsula. Mm. And I thought, if you really wanted to fly somewhere to somewhere like Fiji or uh, Samoa to get to a world-class beach, I'm not sure what you're missing if you don't go, mm. uh, because maybe it's in another country and you get to pick something else from your passport and say you've been there. But the Coromandel is gorgeous. Mm. Uh, and New Zealand has always been, you know, something for everybody. There's desert, there's jungle, almost. Um, there's temperate zones, there's beaches, black sand, white sand. Um, there's everything for everybody here. And it's, it's kind of, people, people travel thousands and thousands of miles just to get here. But for us, it's a few miles away. So I think there's probably going to be more spending locally. Um, how they're going to get there, unknown. But it is all very interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, and the Chinese companies, well, it's being published that Chinese companies are in rapid recovery phase now post COVID nineteen, and that their you know supply chains, factories, etc., are getting back on track. What would the New Zealand economy and businesses look like post lockdown, in your view? Uh, there's, there's a lot of grey space mm. um, in this. Um, it really, I think, depends on how politically the big players are going to react to this. Uh, there were, there's a lot of narrative uh, before this that obviously the United States wanted to do more things um, back on the continental United States rather than offshoring it in the globalization experiment, you know, according to at least the current administration, uh, hadn't worked in the best way um, that they thought it would. So that, that Those wheels were already moving prior to COVID-19, and this has definitely reinforced some of those arguments. Um, for New Zealand... We have a basket um, of FTA free trade agreements with uh, pretty much all of Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, we're in negotiation for one with 
the EU at the moment. Who knows how long that will last and where exactly we are on the priority mm. list, probably middle of the pack to low. Um, but China has basically become um, the moniker for globalization when it comes to New Zealand. So, you know, we've decided to spread our supply chain to everywhere in the world, which is China. And it's kind of, uh, I know our MFAT, our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, has been uh, working diligently to create more avenues for New Zealand um, production um, to deliver their goods to more places. But businesses themselves haven't actually been taking up those um, those opportunities. Um, and I think with something like COVID-19 uh, and you know China being the, the, um, uh, the focus point of that problem, uh, it's now better time than ever for companies to start thinking maybe about Indonesia or Malaysia or the Philippines or Vietnam, mm. um, maybe maybe Mexico. Anybody with, within the TPP, for instance, which was controversial a couple of years ago, but still has created a, an enormous opportunity for Kiwi exporters. It, it doesn't have to, globalization doesn't just have to be about China. It can actually be global. And now's, now's the right time to do that. Uh, will we bring manufacturing back to New Zealand? I don't know. Unlikely. Um, Pretty much everybody, if you travel throughout the centre of the North Island, will uh, look at the the trains with those raw locks um, being shipped to the port of Tauranga mm. or the port of Napier or the port of Auckland and say, why are we doing something with those? Why are we sending logs off to China and then importing back uh, desks? Uh, why can't we be building desks here? Well, a couple of reasons for that. <laughs> the big one is um, regulation uh, and, you know, the the cost of regulations in New Zealand to create manufacturing are just too prohibitive. Um, to be honest, the Chinese can get away with a lot more and with a lot lower safety regulations. So it's a lot cheaper over there. The second is Kiwis just charge too much for their labour, um, probably because they have higher expenses elsewhere and they want a higher standard of living, even if you're someone that's working in a factory, which, historically speaking, hasn't exactly been um, a way you become a millionaire. Um, and so there's a couple of things I think New Zealanders themselves and New Zealand government in terms of policy settings might want to rethink if they want to encourage manufacturing back, back here. But I think that boat has already sailed. I don't think New Zealand is going to reframe its, its living standards or its policy settings for regulations just so that it can please um, a couple of uh, activists who want more onshoring or reshoring of New Zealand manufacturing. I think it's going to be moved elsewhere. Um, I, I, lots of people are already moving out of China, um, so that's probably not going to be the focus point of the world moving forward. Where they move them to is unknown, but as I said, New Zealand's got a lot of choices. It doesn't have to just be caught in the flat circle of doing the same thing mm. over and over again uh, that it has been for the past 20 years. Um, hey, so just tell me on a personal note at the moment, what um, what are you reading and what are you watching to uh, just for your your own uh, let's call it in a simple word your uh, mental wellness? What are you reading and watching? The book I've um, managed to get, and it's a physical book, which is I mean I've got a lot of them, but it's been a while since I bought a physical book. It's a book by uh, George Friedman, who is the founder of Stratfor, um, and uh, he's since stepped down as the chairman of that. Stratfor is um, a, uh, a portmanteau of the two words strategic forecasting. Mm. It's essentially a, um, a private intelligence or geopolitical intelligence company. You can sign up for it. I recommend it. I've been a subscriber for about 10 years with them. Um, 
essentially what I was talking about before, they, they take all the things that are happening, they pass it with uh, structured analytical techniques and produce reports on what has happened, what it means and what you can expect coming next in a very unbiased way. And I've appreciated their insight for years. He founded that company and has been very successful since. But he wanted to write more. So he created a new company called Geopolitical Futures, which I believe gets a lot of um, attention from Lady Smith's podcast, for instance, not to uh, mm. plug someone yeah. a, a competitor <laughs> to yours. But, um, but he's, re- he's written a handful of excellent books. They're all forecasting books. The latest one is called The Storm Before the Calm, which is sort of a play on that old phrase, essentially saying that the, the American empire, um, which is essentially what it is now, um, is going through a transitional period where he's trying to uh, um, uh, disformalize what it has. Mm. Uh, and the next two decades, 2020s and the 2030s, will be tumultuous. But uh, after that, um, uh, the, the system will be prepped um, and essentially we're moving into the, the American century. Very interesting, um, controversial in some places, mm. but I am enjoying it. Um, other than that, I've got hundreds of books I really need to read on my Kindle. Um, but that's the problem with the Kindle. You keep downloading books and you never get around to them because they're just not <laughs> staring at you in, in your face on, on your bookshelf. Um, so there's plenty to go around. Old mate, um, that sounds like that's really informative, and hopefully, um, a couple of people will pick up on that and um, and and follow through and and with that with the author as well. Sounds really interesting. Um, hey, well, mate, that I, I think that's a good place for us to um, bring this first podcast with you to a close. And look again, I just say thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Appreciate your views as always, as I have in a personal capacity for many years. And, um, and mate, I just, you know, stay safe, stay well, and look forward to catching up in person in Wellington in due course. Excellent. Look, it was really fun seeing to you and your family. Hope you have bush. Make sure you get lots of vitamin D, and uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. That'll be beauty. The information provided or any opinions expressed in this podcast are of a general nature and should not be construed or relied on as a recommendation to invest in a financial product or class of financial products. You should seek financial advice specific to your circumstances from an authorized financial advisor before making any decisions. A disclosure statement can be attained free of charge by calling 0800 878 961 or visiting our website www.stuartgroup.co.nz